<clears throat> okay, so I'm going to start um, this discussion, which is uh, quite a challenging, I think, uh, and a very important one. The title of this panel, and I think the conference, is Populist Rebellion, right? And um, so this is really, I mean, what has been said before is that we are dealing with an extraordinary um, deep crisis, identity crisis uh, in, in Europe, and which has been deepened by the 2015-2016 migration crisis, uh, triggering this extraordinary rise, as Damon mentioned, of uh, anti-establishment parties and movements and quite a, you know, a, a lot of uh, electoral victories for some of these parties throughout Europe. We're seeing at the same time this uh, extraordinary parallel rebellion, populist rebellion on the other side of the Atlantic. And um, so the question is, what does that all mean? And um, the... A friend of mine who is professor of, at Georgetown University, Joshua Mitchell, recently in an article was talking about uh, the mental dust that is upon us. And he was meaning by that, you, you know, quoting Tocqueville, this sort of uh, uncertainty in which the political and intellectual elites are in uh, acknowledging what is happening. We are in disarray, let's be clear. We don't know what is happening to us. We've been, to a certain extent, in denial of what is happening, but now we're hit with such a, a strength that we have no choice but we f to face this crisis and try to find some answers to what is happening. To, to uh, try to answer uh, this question of what is happening to us, uh, we have this uh, very good panel here, very distinguished, and uh, if I can uh, start from my uh, immediate left, uh, Paula Dobriansky, uh, very nice to meet you, uh, Paula, and uh, you, 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 here you, you're very well known, I understand, you've been Under Secretary of, uh, of State in the Bush administration, and you have uh, worked in many positions in government, and you are now at Harvard University. Uh, working on European issues uh, at the Kennedy School of Government. So um, then we have uh, Ambassador Kassir, uh, very nice to meet you, Ambassador. Uh, you, are, you are currently uh, Ambassador to the Hungary uh, for Slovakia, and uh, you've been here also as Ambassador to the US, and you are very deep, uh, you have deep knowledge of European and transatlantic issues, and I think you have attended uh, in many ways to the integration of Slovakia into uh, the, the NATO uh, alliance and the EU. Yes, I can be blamed for that. <laughs> <laughs> then we have Benjamin, my friend Benjamin Haddad, who is a French uh, uh, scholar at the Hudson Institute and uh, has been actually pretty involved in uh, international affairs in, the polit in politics in France and moved now to being a a very uh, you know, fine observer of what is happening both in Europe and in the US and comparing the two at Hudson Institute. And then we have Ashley, um, Ashley, I'm sorry, I <laughs> forgot your name, uh, Ashley. Uh, <laughs> Ashley Godwin. I'm sorry, Ashley That's Godwin. Okay. Yes, you are actually, you're coming straight from Britain, which is uh, very important, where, where the Brexit just occurred and you're a committee specialist working on uh, the Committee on Foreign Affairs and uh, National Security uh, at the House of Commons. Yeah. So welcome to us, uh, to you all. 
And uh, I'm actually st st going to start from uh, Ashley and ask her, uh, Ashley, uh, since you're coming from Great Britain, and, and, and we, we've had this earth, political earthquake just for the, I mean, as well for, uh, for Britain as for the EU, uh, what do you make of what happened? What is happening? What is the nature of this re rebellion? Um, well, can I just start by saying it's an absolute pleasure to be here at the Atlantic Council. I'm also an Atlantic Council Millennium Fellow, which is the capacity I'm here in today. One of the unexpected personal outcomes of Brexit is that I almost always get asked to speak first, ever since. Um, I mean, that is the multi-million dollar question, isn't it? What, what is happening um, in the UK? I would say it's not just the UK, it's happening and we've already seen the really, really interesting data. I definitely want a copy of those slides. Um, it's a global problem. If you look at you know, sort of the migration figures, I think the UNHCR last year estimated 65 million people displaced by conflict. To put that into context, that's the size of the population of the UK, either internally or externally displaced. But as the Euro European migration crisis shows, it's not just about conflict, it's also about people seeking economic security as well. So I think we're seeing many different um, elements coming together. And, and part of this is the impact of globalization. It's so much easier for people to move now. People have access to more information. Um, you have free movement, free flows, um, and in some ways, this has brought prosperity for quite a few people. But actually, on the other side, as the data has shown, um, it's actually also been a very uneven, unequal process. And I think our politicians have really struggled to get to grips with actually just how bad, how adverse some of those effects have been for people within their country. And I think if you look at the Brexit vote, and I, I would add a disclaimer here, the problem with in-out, yes-no referenda is you get a single answer, but it, it hides an absolute multitude of motivations. So you can't say the people in the UK voted, 17 million people voted to leave the EU because they dislike Brussels. You can't say they wanted their sovereignty back. You can't say they dislike migrants. There are so many people who had their own personal motivations. But one thing you can look at is, especially since the financial crisis, the uneven nature of the economic recovery. The, the UK economy as a whole is now growing very slowly, but it is growing, but not in certain parts of the country. And I think if you look at the um, dire predictions for the UK economy made by politicians, it was known as Project Fear in the UK. Um, the Chancellor George Osborne was saying, you know, you're basically voting for a self-inflicted recession. You're voting to put a bomb under the economy. And yet people still voted for it. And I think that really does speak volumes about how badly people felt about their own situation as it was before the vote, that they really didn't care that they were voting for this economic disaster, which has yet to happen because we haven't actually left yet. In fact, we haven't even notified anyone that we're going to leave. Um, but still, c c shouldn't we, though, you know, uh, really try to name the main uh, trigger uh, elements of this rebellion? And shouldn't we... Uh, sort of sum up and say that basically this is a rebellion against, as you said, globalization, also open-ended immigration, and, and uh, also a rebellion against supranational structures which are perceived as not protective. And isn't it actually, uh, most of all, this rebellion, a, a need for protection, a rebellion of the unprotected, mm. the people who are not benefiting, uh, you know, unlike the elite, 
from the uh, sort of uh, good sides of, uh, of globalization and, and, and flows of people. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what you're seeing now is sort of a, a switch from, well, it's still there, but a sort of move away from the conventional, the traditional politics, if you like, of left versus right. And now you're starting to see a move, or at least an intersection towards open versus closed. People who feel that uh, globalization works for them and people who feel that it doesn't, that actually they've lost out. They feel insecure precisely because they have these different factors that are happening to them their own governments are not necessarily listening. And at the same time, you might have had um, some elements of sovereignty move towards, in the case of the UK, a lot of people feel that the, the bureaucrats in Brussels, the politicians in Brussels, are faceless. They're unaccountable. They're not engaged with British politics and British way of life. And I think all of those factors come together in this. And if you look at um, our, our new Prime Minister, Theresa May, who became Prime Minister in July, she um, gave what I believe is quite a telling speech yesterday at the end of the Conservative Party conference, and I would urge everyone in this room to go and read it, because um, if you look at her speech, she is precisely, this is what she's trying to address. This feeling in the UK, and the main mantra she's come out with since July is she wants to create a country that works for everyone, not just the privileged few. And I don't believe that that phrase, not just the privileged few, is her trying to shed the image of the Tory party as being for the wealthy. I think she's trying to get at this sense that actually the economy, politics, hasn't really been working for a lot of people in the country, regardless of whether you're Tory, Labour, Lib Dem, whatever your political affiliation. Um, and if you look at her speech yesterday, there are a few main themes. One, um, economic fairness, social justice, equality of opportunity, and then my favorite one, uh, meritocratic Britain. Meritocratic Britain is now a proper noun. If you read her speech, it's capitalized and everything. But I think it really shows those themes are something that she wants her government to address. Um, whether she'll be able to, given that the focus that will be required to actually negotiate Brexit is another question. But I think it's really very telling that those are the things she's called out and has been the main point of discussion at the Conservative, the leading party conference this week. Uh, Benjamin, if we can move to France, which is also actually uh, uh, you know, crossed by a, a huge uh, doubt, identity doubt, a huge <laughs> crisis of identity which has been triggered or reinforced by the uh, terrorist attacks, which have been very many uh, in the recent uh, months. Uh, how do you see this? Uh, this question in France, uh, France, which used to be actually the, uh, you know, the sort of uh, engine of Europe and, and the, the country believing in the European project, and now we see in the data we, we, we've uh, been presented with that France has so many doubts, you know, about about the European Union. What is it, and uh, is there this uh, uh, this doubt that multiculturalism is not working? Um. Yeah, I think very much so. One of the things that I find most striking is, you know, I'm a French citizen, I've lived here for two years now, is the similarities between the debate in the United States and in Europe. And I'm pretty sure it's, it's never been so close since maybe the Second World War. Um, you, you know, both continents are in periods of transition, economic, social, cultural, and in both cases you see a, a growing demand for, as you said, protection. Economic protection, but not only economic protection, also a form of social and cultural protection. There is a demand among a certain uh, part of voters for a form of cultural cohesion, social cohesion. And, and you clearly, 
feel it in, in, in France. And it's true that um, you know, when you hear Theresa May who says, when you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere, and you hear Donald Trump at the Republican convention uh, you know, saying, I'm the America first candidate against the globalist candidate. I mean, you, you see that the debate is, is starting to be structured the same way. It's not about so much about the welfare state or economics or uh, big ideologies like it used to be in the 20th century, but it's really about the relationship to globalization, open societies, uh, the European Union in, in, in Europe, and, and the relation to, to borders and, and identity and, and multiculturalism. And it's very interesting that you know, in, in many countries in Europe, uh, you see even the, the political structure, you know, the political parties are st starting to reorganize themselves according to this. Do you in, think in the challenges of Islam is, is a key part of this uh, unease, of this debate? I mean, how, how much is it triggering this conversation according to you? Uh, I, I think the, the issue of identity and the issue of integration of, of Muslim immigrants is clearly a, a, a key factor. Uh, beyond, by the way, the terrorism aspect, which, yes. which I, I don't even think that's the key issue. There was a, a report that's very interesting uh, from Institut Montaigne, which is sort of a centrist think tank in France, uh, last week that said that if you look at the Muslim population in France, for example, you have a, a majority of them that is uh, becoming more and more secular, more and more integrated, that completely respects French identity or, and and you know, Republican principles, but you do have a sizable minority, something among 28%, uh, according to the report, and that's 50% of the people under 25 who actually uh, uh, put religious identity or Islamic identity above uh, French identity. So that's, that's the challenge, and it's clearly gonna be a key issue uh, in the French presidential election that's coming in the next spring, and, and you can see that you know, people are organizing themselves. According to this, it's, it's quite likely that, uh, I mean, at least if the election were held today, Marine Le Pen would be in the second round. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is in front of her, you'll have either the center-left or the center-right candidate. It could be someone like Juppé or like the uh, economics minister who just resigned, uh, Emmanuel Macron, who will be the sort of pro-European, liberal, social democrat uh, uh, candidate. So, you know, it can be either the center-left or center-right, but they, there's a, you know, uh, reorganization of politics, I think, uh, along, along these lines. And you see this everywhere in Europe. I mean, it's interesting. In, uh, uh, in Italy, Renzi's, uh, Renzi rules from the center and his opposition is both the far left with Beppe Grillo and the, the far right with the Northern League. You have Merkel in Germany, who is today more popular among SPD voters than Sigmar Gabriel, who's the leader of the, the SPD. So, you know, you, you have these, these, I think, these divisions that are, that are shifting. And if I can add, you know, something else, if, if liberals pro-European liberals want to win this debate, they have to take into consideration these, these fears for voters. We are going to go back to that. Okay. This is the second part of this uh, debate. But I want to move to Ambassador Kassir and ask you, um, why do you think this rebellion has been so strong in Eastern Europe, um, so stark? I mean, we've seen that the crisis against migrants has triggered a, a, a huge rejection uh, among uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, uh, you know, willingness to, to close the borders, the, the fear to be overwhelmed, and uh, we've seen uh, the emergence of uh, uh, leaders, uh, nationalist, author, authoritarian in some parts, uh, willing to uh, question, you know, the uh, legitimacy of Brussels. Uh, in the country you are serving in, especially now. So it would be interesting to, um, to, to see what you think. 
why that? Is it, is it the fear to, to lose uh, the sovereignty that uh, uh, the East Europeans have been longing to regain for such a long time? Or is it that they're looking at Western Europe and seeing the uh, you know, challenges, to say the least, of multiculturalism, and they say, no, we don't want that? I mean, how do you see that? Regain sovereignty. <clears throat> I think there is a lot of hypocrisy what is going on, and a lot of uh, reality versus uh, perception in what we are living. Uh, when you would look, there is a good blog, by the way, just for the inspiration. Uh, the title is uh, very nice, and the title is saying, is it just me or is the world going crazy? Uh, Mark Manson wrote it. Uh, and uh, he goes uh, arguing that what is the reality of the world and what is our perceptions? And the truth is that when you would do it, and the polling is good, when you would look at the fears of people and you would look at the realities, in Poland, where is the highest uh, uh, fear of, of threat of terrorism because of migrants, realities, there is almost no migrants. In Slovakia, we've given 15 asylums a year. Uh, so what, you know, 15 migrants can cause, uh, even in the small 5 million country. And the probability that you die of terrorist attack is um, thousand times lower uh, as being killed by a hairdryer if it pops down into your, uh, um, um, while you take a shower. So, you know, there is also a perception of something that Brussels is an arch enemy. This is a course of, of all evil, what is going on. And we see leaders coming after Brussels meeting and saying, oh, this bloody Brussels immigrant quota decision. Then you look into what they bitch about and you find that they've been voting for it. So prime ministers come to the council, which is not a Brussels, it's the national body based on national decision making. They vote for some decision, they come home and instantly, like in the high level of schizophrenia, they will start to criticize Brussels about the decision. So first of all, we live in the parallel realities and politics, politics lost any shame here uh, to work on these parallel realities. We see it in, in US campaign, you know, uh, people prove that uh, Trump would lie in 70% of his statement, but nevertheless, he would get almost 50% support. So they know he's lying, but dis despite that they are inclined to vote for him. And we see the same thing uh, in Europe. You see that these guys are absolutely divert, damaging, sometimes even crazy, but there is some fatal attraction for I'm going to, uh, to, 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 to go for you. And on, the, um, on this fear of, of different, there is something about this, you know. They, uh, I, I really, um, I was struck by the cultural difference here, how Poles and Hungarians, and I think Slovaks would be close to that if they were included, how they fear of different, and how those who were living in the more um, colorful societies, they are more, uh, or they fear much less. In Slovakia, I remember when I was young, which was not that time, not that long time ago, uh, and I want to marry. First question when I came on and said, I got a girl I'm going to marry. My grandma's first question was, is she Catholic? <laughs> um, and if I said, if I said she's Lutheran, that would be a problem. If I say she's Jewish, or she would say, oh my God, you know, uh, maybe they would overcome, but that would be the concern. Mm -hmm. If I would marry from one village in Tatras to another one, which by a distance uh, in the air would be 10 kilometers, around the valley you maybe need to go 20. If I marry there, even my kids 
born there, they would call them the kids of that stranger who married here. So there is something in, in Central Europe. We were living somewhere behind, you know, uh, Count Schwarzenberg called it, the former uh, Czech foreign minister, the valley mentality of Central Europe. Uh, living a little bit apart, but it, this is to me, I still do not understand, because if I look into the old Hungarian kingdom, which we part uh, many nations for almost thousand years, this was based on at least four national pillars of Magyars, um, Slovaks, uh, Jews, and, and Germans. And we managed to live in this colorful society for a long time. And now, like everything, you, like you, you got erased hard disk in your brain. A Magyar Orszak, a Magyar Hungarian, Hungary to Hungarians, and in Slovakia also. So I think, I think there is something thick, sick which is, which is going on uh, within us, and we can come back to it in, in the next round. Um, I, I'm going to move to you, Paula, um, Ambassador Dobryansky. Uh, if you could give us the view from uh, across the pond and tell us, uh, given the fact that you are too uh, witnessing this incredible uh, rebellion, uh, which has a name now called Donald Trump, uh, how do you see what is going on in Europe? You know. Uh, uh, to a certain extent, maybe I would say, maybe a year ago, I mean, I, I spent eight years in Washington and just left now, and I would have said that maybe a year ago before the Trump phenomenon, the Americans would have probably taken a pretty critical, I would say maybe a bit condescending view on what is happening in Europe and would have said, oh, guys, you, you don't know how to deal with that. You know, we, we've been so good and uh, you, you, know, you don't know how to integrate. Uh, uh, look at us and, 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 do, and do the work, right? But now it, it happens that this is a, a global Western uh, uh, rebellion. So what do you see from where you are? Well, I think there are a number of factors. And first, let me commend the Atlantic Council for bringing us together and especially this particular panel is an interesting one because it's not one in which we've always had deep dives here. We always look at more of the strategic and the economic, but in this particular piece, I think it really adds uh, an important element to the discussion. But what do I think? I think uh, you've heard all of the factors already as to what has contributed to the challenges. But let me step back and Focus on a few that maybe haven't been said. I'd start with, I mean, there's you intimated in particular. I'd start with the issue of leadership. And something that comes to my mind, um, looking at where we are and the question about our role in the world, not just only relevant to the transatlantic relationship, um, but uh, uh, looking at also the leaders in Europe. I feel that one thing that has moved aside is what we'd call a moral narrative. Mm -hmm. A moral narrative about the very values that we hold dearly. Yes. I don't think that that has undergirded a lot of what's going on. We look at many of the particulars, and you have to look at the particulars clearly to solve the problems. But in a way, we're being challenged. And I think not just only by, I would say, uh, the neighbor to the east, but even more globally, we're being challenged. And I think there's an important element here where there has to be a political desire of activism, of, as the foreign minister said in his remarks, unity of purpose mm -hmm. and strength in, 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 in you know, that kind of, of numbers, 
But here, there has to be a, a I think, which hasn't been, an articulation of, of the very values that, by the way, really united us and brought us forward at a very difficult time. Think about it, post-World War II and even during the heyday of the Cold War. But having said that, let me come to the second, because there's a second piece, and that is the issue of our institutions and our alliances. I'm a firm believer in our institutions, and I'm not just speaking of, you know, in this case, narrowly defined European institutions, but more broadly. But you know something, the world has changed. And in that sense, I think where we come up short, we're not being as flexible or as fluid as we can or should be in looking at how do we address these kinds of issues. I mean, let me give another one, if I can, in the mix. The foreign minister, it struck me that in his remarks, he mentioned Ukraine. Right? I spend a lot of time working on Ukraine, but why does it matter? It matters because Europe is seized by this, these migration flows, this question of identity. And to me, as I've said, identity is not just nationalism. It is about our identity of values, which undergird us. And that's key, I think. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, he mentioned Ukraine. And, you know, while there's that migration challenge, the economic challenges, right there in Ukraine, you have uh, 1.5 to 2 million internally displaced persons. Think about that and think about the ramifications of that relative to stability, to security. We know very well the economic, we know very well the military uh, uh, challenges uh, and the uh, invasion uh, of, of Ukraine, but it's not as focused, the humanitarian, which is an important part of also advancement and of unity of purpose here, which gets really brushed aside. So two last comments. Ashley mentioned in her opening, her comment in response to you, that she used the word global. I would also put that as we discuss this, I think this very issue does have global ramifications. It is an important one. What happens in the transatlantic arena really does have global ramifications. And how we handle it, how we step forward and deal with it is, is, is key. And the second piece, because I'm the American on this, uh, on, this, on this panel of stepping forward. I think also mixed in this is the question of America's role in the world. I'd like to see us engaged. That's the side of the issue that I fit on. But by the way, does that mean to ignore what's happening in our own domestic arena? No, there has to be a balance. Uh, but it can't, in my view, I think the worst scenario is one extreme or the other extreme. You have to balance both because the fact of the matter is what's happening in Europe does have consequences, in my view, for us. Oh, thank you very much, Ambassador. You, you are actually, uh, you know, you have pointed to all the important aspects that we're going to talk about. And, but what you say about the moral narrative is, is, is very important. But the, 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 the question is, uh, how do the elite um, tackle the internal issue of, of this rebellion? Because, I mean, as you've mentioned, we, we, we are, we, we're confronted to many uh, different challenges. We have the Russia challenges, as you said, and in a way, you know, the, the moral issue of are we going to help 
you know, Ukraine uh, which needs help and are we going to make sure that, you know, international law is, is being respected? So that's one point. We're going to come back to that. But we, how do we, uh, are, we are we able to uh, protect and defend the institutions that you believe in and that we all believe in? Uh, these, the, the democracy, the democracy, institution of democracy, and the alliances we have, uh, you know, we've built uh, since uh, uh, 1945. If we, if uh, the worm is uh, of doubt and and divide over what we should do is inside our societies. So how do we answer internally? And and. Um, to the challenge, if the if the people actually don't believe that the elites and the, the and the, uh, the the people in charge are able to to face the real threats, because uh, we, in terms of morals, you know, I, I don't understand exactly what you mean by the morals when you talk about the migrations and uh, the, the question of immigration. Is it uh, is it a, a truth established that open-ended immigration? Uh, is 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 moral, for instance, or do the, the 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 nations have the right to question whether this is the right model, uh, this open-ended immigration? Because this is what they are doing now. So how do we how do we square that? And if we don't answer that, don't we uh, don't we just run the risk that uh, people will just shift then to a, a kind of uh, authoritarian? Uh, model, and I, I'd like you to answer uh, about that, and then Benjamin, because Benjamin, actually we talked before, and he wanted to talk, to, to touch upon this very issue. Okay. Let, let, me, let me say that, uh, no, you raise some very important points. Let me define what I was trying to say. And maybe let me refer to a professor of mine that I is now deceased, but Samuel Huntington at Harvard. He wrote a book in which he was looking at the American political system. He says it goes through four cycles. He said the worst cycle is what, what he calls, you know, in this case it was the IVI gap, ideals versus institutions. Mm -hmm. The worst cycle is when your institutions do not live up to your ideals. And the public is disillusioned, they feel betrayed, they feel it's not delivering, that it's not doing what we're identified with. That's what I'm saying. First, there are moral standards of what we're all about in terms of the kinds of freedoms, freedom of opportunity, freedom of speech, freedom of travel, the basic uh, human freedoms that identify us and what we're, we've held so dearly. But the fact of the matter is, in terms of the establishment and our institutions, no, I would say that we have had challenges in the way in which we have been dealing with it. That's why I did suggest there has to be some modification because the world has changed. But to answer precisely your question, I mean, when I look at the United States and when I was in government, by the way, I had the Refugee Bureau. I mean, we've had ebbs and flows in our own history of how many refugees we bring in. I think of the heyday of the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, in that context, there were many who came into the United States. We've had ebbs and flows. I think that each country does have to, I'm looking at the individual, not the whole. Each country has to look at what they're capable of, what are the parameters, and leaders have to step forward. But that doesn't mean to the neglect of also having uh, the institutional discussions. You've already Absolutely. heard the comments about sovereignty. Every case is different. Um, uh, so 
Here, there is a gap, and that's what I was trying to express. Yes. Uh, let's continue. I mean, if you can sort of uh, uh, bounce on, on this issue, uh, Benjamin. I, I completely agree with what uh, Paula Dobriansky said about the, the necessity for leadership. And, and the lack thereof, in, especially in Europe, this, this, this last decade. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why the, the National Front and far right has thrived in France, for example, over the last decades, is that for a long time it was completely impossible in the political conversation to talk about issues such as law and order, security, or immigration, or identity. And they've, they've had a complete monopoly on these issues that they've hijacked towards a very illiberal, uh, you know, exclusionist uh, narrative, a pro-Russian narrative as well now in, in the case of Europe. So I think the challenge for pro-European liberals is not to be afraid of these issues, but actually reclaim them, reclaim even, even politics. And it's more and more urgent because, you know, with what's been going on in Europe over the last couple of years, you have a convergence at the same time of a financial crisis, of a monetary crisis, and obviously Russian aggression on the east, the trouble on the, on the uh, uh, neighborhood, and, and, and terrorism, and the refugee issue. So you have a convergence of all these issues. You know, you remember 10 years ago, there was a famous book that said that Europe was a post-modern post Kantian paradise. I mean, clearly Hobbes is back with vengeance now in, in Europe. And I think the, uh, the way the European Union functions, it was really, it was built on the idea that you had to overcome politics that you had to create solidarity through technical cooperation, through institutional cooperation. I think what's urgent now for people who want to defend the European model is to show voters that someone's in charge, there's leadership, and that you can actually, through Europe, not through going back to nativism, but through Europe, you can defend your borders. And I think, you know, the, the, actually the proposition coming from the commission recently on more border patrols and reinforcing Frontex goes in the right direction. You can have a, a serious immigration policy. You can have defense and security, common defense and security. And maybe that there'll be one of the, the rare good news of Brexit is that the British veto on these issues will, will not be there anymore, hopefully. Um, you, you know, I think that's, that's going to be the, the key challenge. If you look at the Eurosceptic vote, I actually don't like the word Eurosceptic because, you know, UK or National Front, they're not Eurosceptic, they're anti-European. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you look at this vote, you know, you, you have some people who vote who are generally against the European Union, who, who want to go back completely to national borders, to national currencies, et cetera. You have people who just want leadership on these issues, who have concern, and they don't want elite or political leaders to tell them, you know, borders is something of the past, identity is so passeist, and, and, you know, and, and, and shaming them into abandoning these issues. We have, we have to prove that liberals can, can reclaim that. I think that's, that's going to be the, the big challenge. May I just make two quick, quick points based on, on that? Leadership matters, and I don't think that we are seeing a clear articulation of, mm -hmm. of coming forward of what we're about, what we've always been about, exactly. but also how you bring people in. Mm -hmm. But the second, you mentioned the neighbor to the east, Russia. There's a, a great investment being made in terms of disinformation. And that's also at a play here, which I think needs to be stated. And that goes right to the heart of my point about the moral narrative and the very values. Mm -hmm. President Putin gave a speech, I remember, after the uh, illegal annexation of Crimea on March 18, uh, you know, years back, I guess 2014. 2014. And you know, at that time, he said that uh, very specifically that uh, Western values are not our values. Uh, we're being challenged, and if we don't step forward and say what we're about, mm -hmm. it will affect 
uh, uh, people are disillusioned and they don't know what we're about. And there isn't that kind of leadership and inspiration and inclusivity. Now, this, this is a wonderful transition because it brings me back to the third set of questions I wanted to ask, which is, in, in fact, namely Russia and the Russia factor, which is a huge factor, which has been underestimated, I think, for, for quite a few years, uh, both here, I think, and uh, in Europe uh, as a threat. Uh, it has shifted with the, there, there was a wake-up call, sort of awakening to the Russian threat in uh, 2014 after the uh, first uh, term of President Obama, where he really tried to sort of uh, withdraw from uh, you know, the neighborhood of Russia thinking after the uh, George W. Bush era, which was much more proactive, and then sort of withdraw thinking that it was the, 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 um, actually the mistake of the previous administration which had triggered the aggressiveness of Russia, which I think personally was, is a mistake of analysis and that in fact Russia, uh, it, it is actually inside Russia that the foreign policy of Russia is being cooked and not you know, in reaction to, to, to what is happening outside. So uh, what I want to, to ask uh, Ambassador Kutcher, uh, who is very well tooled, I think, to um, see the, the problem is how, how dangerous uh, is uh, the, the capacity of Russia in this time of identity crisis and a shift of a part of the opinion to the far right uh, because they are so obsessed with radical Islam that they want uh, some kind of ally and they think that you know authoritarian Russia is the ally that they should turn yeah. to. How, how much is it you know a sort of a conflation of factors which would be uh, uh, you know dangerously uh, uh, worrying for us? Now you put me on to the hell because I'm acting I'm still the ambassador but I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I have to say a few things. It's on the record, okay. Let me hang, and then you hang me after. Um, I'm of those who were called a few years ago that they are paranoid about Russia. I don't think that those people would call me paranoid today. <laughs> My first tough lesson uh, with the approach, because and, and I reply first, how dangerous? It's, it's, it's that dangerous how our naivete will continue and how our misperception of the clash of the values will continue. We spoke, uh, Paula mentioned uh, Huntington, this clash of civilizations, famous article, uh, should be reread now today to a certain degree. And we'll come back. My, my first lesson, I have to mention it, because this was a revelation to me at the point. Before we joined uh, NATO, Council uh, encouraged us, new members joining, saying, go to Moscow and explain your reason. Go and tell them that you don't want to join NATO because we want to confront them. Uh, you were you know, in the Soviet uh, time partners, so they may understand you. And I went to Moscow encouraged by this, and I met uh, Sergei Prikhotko at the time, advisor to Putin. We were sitting in the big office, and really, out of my heart, uh, with all of my idealism, uh, which is my life curse, um, I went and I said, you know, with really hard on, on, on my uh, hand, said, explain all the reasons, not because we see Russia as enemy, well, this is the values we want to reconnect, blah, all, all the things. And he listened to me, he said nothing during that conversation, which lasted about half an hour, and he called Luke. And when I finished, he said, Mr. State Secretary, you don't understand. If you join NATO, we will put you on the list of our enemies. And that was all conversation. 
Um, and I was thinking very much, you know, how can you, can you, how can you talk like that? And in the years after, I understood that the country has never gone through any type of modernization. This is not a values uh, which West is linked to. This is something which is a completely different type of society, which is not able to compete when the world is open. Uh, and in an open, globalized, competitive world, they can't, you, you would have to accept that you sit at table with countries like Denmark and listen what they say, five million people, or Swedes, or, or Slovaks, because this is a culture of EU and NATO. Of course, sometimes we do a, a, a bigger male and, and, and a smaller dog, and I don't know what the game, but still you have to sit and listen, and at the end you vote. And if Iceland, without the armed forces, say, you are not going to fuck me up here, you know? They say, no, no vote, and there is no going through. That's it, train stops. Uh, they cannot accept this culture, and for them, to bring you back to confrontational mode, it's a survival mode. Uh, so this is a necessity uh, to confront you. And I'm coming back to the information war and how dangerous that is. Um, in the last couple of years, it is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. We saw a very sophisticated level of uh, propaganda war. Yeah, this is nothing new. I recommend another reading, Mr. Pacepa, who was a defected head of Ro Romanian intelligence, wrote an excellent book about the nature of uh, um, um, this uh, desinformatia uh, war, disinformation war. It's an excellent reading. Uh, well, when you look into Slovak in particular, Czech, Hungarian uh, uh, informational space, you see it's completely overflooded with extremely efficient information war. But it, I'm, the technique, my son found it somewhere, uh, the technique used, it's called the merchandise of doubt. So by this technique, you create the cloud. Who said that's the beginning? Uh, I, I think you said this, what, what was it? Uh, the dust, mental dust. Yes. This was the word. Um, there's a, a, a something where nobody knows what is right, what is wrong, and you got completely skeptical, you got cynical, and you say, I don't care because it's so complex, it's so like nobody has got the truth. There is no truth. There, there is no truth, but I, and I want to go further here because they used this method in the communist days where there was an iron curtain and there was a clear division, and they failed because you, 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 know, you can fool some people sometimes, not all people all the time, but now it gets much further because they, add, they smartly use the globalized uh, world, what is globalized world offering. This is the fluidity of capital. A lot of capital went out. President mm -hmm. Putin at some famous meeting some 10 years ago what, assembled together his top entrepreneurs uh, in oligarchs said, go invest and buy as much as you can. So now uh, it's investment into political lobbying. It comes, you know, people comes in the dark suit speaking perfect English or perfect German. And they'll invest in campaign of CDU party. Uh, they'll invest in another political campaigns. Uh, um, um, they will um, smartly, creatively, financially support all crazy parties in Europe, uh, nationalist, uh, right-wing, mm -hmm. destructive. But it's not done from Russia Bank. It's coming from a rise, complicated. So it's even hard. If you got the smartest intelligence, it's very hard to trace. So I would close because I'm speak speaking already for too long. It's very, very dangerous, and we badly underestimate the impact uh, of mm. this. Thank you very much for it's these been comments, very destructive. which are, I think, extremely uh, important in this uh, 
what you call it, the merchandi merchandising merchandise of doubt, of doubt is, is a, a, you know, a concept that I will use again. I think it's, it's brilliant. Uh, to continue this conversation, we sort of link it with what we've said before. Uh, Ashley, could you, could you tell us, first of all, if you think that Russia has, in a way, used the Brexit to its own interests in Britain? I mean, uh, Russia is extremely present in, in Britain in many ways. I mean, uh, in London, as we know, through very different uh, means and uh, with a strong uh, financial uh, investment. Uh, so how, how much is it playing on, on that kind of movement like the Brexit? And, and if you can then widen the scope and, and tell us how guilty are we about what is happening <laughs> for having closed our eyes on both uh, the challenge that Russia represents and has been representing for many years now, you know, and, and, and at the same time closing our eyes on, for instance, the challenge of radical Islam and actually giving Russia a huge boulevard to work on because they say, okay, for the people who see this radical Islam question, you know, they really don't want even to talk about it. So come to me. I'm going to help you. I mean, the link between these two topics is, is absolutely fundamental to understand what is happening now in Europe. Don't you think? Um, well, I'll take your first point, which was um, how much Russia is uh, making hay out of Brexit. Now, when um, part of the very um, limited debate, I would say, before the referendum, people were saying, well, the only person who will be pleased about this in Europe is Putin. Um, and that was sort of one of the the, the few strands of Project Fear that were thrown out. Now, as I said earlier, we haven't even um, formally notified the EU of our intention to leave. Um, it's difficult for me to say how much Russia is actually making out of this right now, but I would say that actually it's not something, if it is going to happen, we probably won't see it for some time. Mm -hmm. um, and then speaking to your second point, um, in 2012, when MIP, Romney said, I believe, in a presidential debate that mm -hmm. Russia remained one of our primary, one of the West's primary uh, adversaries. Everyone scoffed mm -hmm. in the UK, I presume in the US too. Um, and he's been proven right, which is quite interesting. I do think we've been somewhat guilty of that, personally after Georgia in 2008. Mm -hmm. I think that was a moment that was missed by the West people. They were too focused on Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and I think actually if you, that was sort of that moment where Putin realized he could get away with certain things so long as the West was sufficiently distracted. The I, point about radical extremism, I'm not sure, it's not actually something I've ever really thought about of them being so linked. I mean, obviously Russia has this role in Syria now that has, um, it, it's sort of been using to sort of leverage its own position on the global stage. I mean, in the sense that, I mean, we've seen Russia extremely clearly actually, uh, you know, stating, look at me, I mean, I'm, I'm the Christian nation here. I'm the ones who are, uh, 
uh, and yes. the, the, the yes. country which is yes. which is uh, fighting radical Islam. True defender of Western uh, Christian values exactly. because in West exactly. Christianity is all melting. It's exactly. all gay. Exactly. Everybody you look at, it's gay. Yes, yes. You know, and this where idea are the that they values? are the new. And here KGB colonel is defending Christian values. Yes. yes. Well, yes. it's an irony of the of. of uh, Benjamin, the do you want to say a word, and then we will we'll shift to the last part, which is what should we do? And I think Ambassador Dubransky is going to talk. More on that. No, I, I completely agree with what you just said. I mean, it, it's fascinating to see how Russia now, you know, if I look at in France, but I think it's also the case in the United States, it's become a domestic political issue. Yes. It's even beyond foreign policy, right? It's, it's part of an ideological package. So if you're against gay marriage, if you're afraid of Arabs, if you think, you know, if you don't like the European Union, then you're going to be pro-Putin. Yeah. And then yeah. you have people on Facebook and Twitter yeah. who are uh, conveying, you know, yeah. RT articles about neo-Nazis in Kiev and all that stuff. They, they don't have a clue what's going on, but they will still you know, uh, 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 see Vladimir Putin, and he's very apt at portraying himself this way as the, the rampart for the, the Christian West and, and, and moral values, etc. cetera. Um, now, that being said, um, you know, there clearly is a very strong uh, uh, policy of, of propaganda and, and erosion of the very notion of truth and facts, and you see it on social media, and you see it through RT and all these things. Now. Um, that, that does not explain, though, the rise of, of populism. You know, the reason why the National Front it's is thriving, it's, it's not part. because it, it's domestic. It's not because oh, it's supported no, by... No, it's, and, they're no, using it. Ab yes. Absolutely. They're yeah, using it in a very opportunistic way. But yeah. I think, you know, it, it is very important to, to look at um, what is going on in Europe. If, if you look at the refugee issue, for example, you had this referendum in Hungary. You know, uh, obviously we can talk about the wording of the, the question. We could talk about the fact that the turnout was only 45%. But 98% of voters yes, exactly. said they were against the refugee quotas Absolutely. imposed the by the European Union. And the campaign was horrible. But if you, if yeah, you but were to still. do a referendum in any country of the European Union, in any country of the 28, you would have a vast majority of people against the, the refugee policy mm -hmm. that's been proposed by Merkel and the, and the so and and that's not you know clearly Russia's thriving on this and the sort of Russian soft power thriving on this, but it's not the cause. Exactly. It's a symptom. It's not exactly. the cause. So I think it's very important to differentiate the Absolutely. two. Absolutely, I I think you are totally right here, yes. and and that leads me to to the major I mean question. I mean we are in America, so the Americans are positive people, so when they see a big problem, they say, what do we do to solve it, yeah. right? So. Uh, so that, that's my question, is uh, uh, what do we do to, uh, to, to confront this reality? Um, do, we, uh, do we acknowledge the importance, for instance, of the nation state, again, which has been somehow maybe neglected in solving certain issues? I mean, what do we do with the borders issues, which is, I think, key? Uh, ambassador, and uh, what about the Syria issue, which seems to me absolutely existential to the future of Europe? Do, uh, should the Europeans get involved m much more than they have? I mean, I, I guess that apart from the French, really, they have, there hasn't been much willingness to face what is going on in Syria in Europe, and I think it's it's uh, staggering, you know. It's, it's very surprising given the stakes, you know, of what we've seen since September 2015 with this migration, which is now, you know, shaking everything and, and, and potentially upsetting the whole political uh, system in, in Europe. So how how do you how do you and, and what do we see in terms of the battle of ideas, as you said, you know, to sort of preserve 
both uh, our alliances and, 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 and the notion of truth, you know, uh, our values. So how do you see this, this uh, battle to be well, waged? There, there isn't a, 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 a simple answer and a silver bullet here, mm. but there are a combination of factors. And I, I also think, you know, you also put it, there's the question of the populism and some of the domestic policies. At the same time, there's also the challenges going on that are more broad-based, more strategic, emanating from Moscow uh, because of exploiting the situation. And how do you deal with both? But let's start backwards. You said Syria. I mean, Syria is very complicated in the sense that we've missed, in my view, many opportunities uh, in dealing with the challenge of Syria. Um, I mean, some major opportuni opportunities, not that it would have solved uh, the situation, but regrettably, I just don't think that because of where what we have not done in the past and where we are now, there isn't an easy answer to your question. Um, tragically, there were things that could have been done earlier but were not done. Uh, in this case, in my view, by the United States, by countries of the region, and also Europe in this case. Um, but starting with the United States, because we stated that we were going to do certain things and then we didn't. But secondly, you raise the importance of the nation state. Um, I think that uh, uh, the nation state, I've always been a believer in the nation state. Um, uh, regardless of uh, broader institutions. I mean, Europe has had its own experiment. And I think Europe has learned some lessons from its own experiment of those areas that have worked, but those areas that have triggered some negative reactions. And that was my point earlier about I think it's key to step back and look at what has worked, but what needs to be changed. Absolutely. And again, you have the migration issue, so you also have to look at what are the changes that have to be made here. And it, to me, you know, the case of Sweden, I'm picking out Sweden because Sweden takes a very large number of, of, of uh, migrants, uh, by the way, from, from Syria, um, is as different from some of the other countries. Every country is different in terms of how it has to deal with it. But that comes to the institutions. I do think the institutions have a role to play, and this is where I was at least emphasizing one piece that has tied us together, but in which I think there's been a complacency, and that is what we're all about, that we're not defending it. And it's a hard time to do it because there has to be change. People are dissatisfied in Europe with the ins broader institutions. But then the question is, looking at our alliances, I mean, on the military component, there are factors and considerations that matter greatly today and in which we need to be unified. So it's a very, there isn't a simple answer in my book to your question, but I would say that I think if I had to sort of, sort of step back and sort of summarize it, I think one needs to look at all the factors. The foreign minister gave a speech and I was, as he was speaking, I was writing down. Mm -hmm. There's the political component to this mm -hmm. that really matters greatly. There's the economic component to this, definitely, because of the haves, the have-nots, and how do you engage? It's not only our trade and transatlantic relationship, but also country-by-country uh, -country opportunities. It is about uh, borders, um, uh, uh, having definition, having definition that makes sense for everyone. 
uh, in this case, rather than just a, a, a you know, kind of a ill-defined type of policy, which exacerbates the, the fears <coughs> and the sentiments of people. And then uh, finally in this mix is, yeah, the, the broader component is, which is the military, too, in the mix, you know, of our alliance. I think we've been complacent. And I think the, maybe the, the silver lining here, and I, 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 if I could say that, is that I think that this is going to jar us into action. At least I hope so. I, I just wanted, I really like what you said, and, and I wanted to, to address this question of the military, actually, which is absolutely key. Do you think that, uh, given the fact, I mean, I was struck by that the minister uh, uh, said, uh, actually, if the Americans think that uh, the fact that we, we, we are telling them we, we won't maybe do as much as we used to uh, as we used to do is going to trigger them to do more and get more proactive and he sort of doubted it which I was mm -hmm. struck by and I thought oh if he's right we are in trouble because you know my, my position as a French uh, a citizen and a, and a European is that we'd better start you know thinking in terms of uh, a European, much more robust, uh, 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 you know, involvement in terms of, of protecting uh, our interests and defending our, our continent, because we are faced with these huge issues, and we are not warranted, as we as we see now, that the Americans will be there forever in the way they have been before. So that, that's absolutely well, key. And I think mm -hmm. that in Europe, people are not yet uh, uh, so aware of that. Uh, my, my quick answer to that is, in my view, one thing that I don't think is different between our two uh, uh, primary presidential candidates, uh, Clinton and Trump, both have spoken to burden sharing. It sort of ends exactly. there, yeah. but exactly. they've both spoken Absolutely. to burden sharing. So that tells you something yes. in that case. And secondly, I think, right. yes, you have to look at what your role is, but in my view here, there's also a debate about America's role in the world. Absolutely. I identified where I come down on this. I think we should have a leadership role. We should be engaged, but that's balanced by what we also do at home. But there are Americans who do not want to see that activism and want to see us pull back. I think that's clearly manifested in our election, presidential election. I think that Ashley Goldwyn wants to talk. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I can barely see Sorry. you. Listen. Um, so there are a few points I wanted to make off the back of the entire conversation. Um, the first is the title of this panel is Populist Revolt. And it kind of suggests this has come as a surprise. And my question is, why is it a surprise? Well, the, the answer is probably we've not been listening. And by we, mm -hmm. I mean policymakers, analysts, the people who say they know what they're talking about, we're just not listening. And um, I, I actually, I've been to DC a few times, but it's, yesterday was the first time I went to Ford's Theatre. And um, in the shop, in the gift shop, there was a mug with an Abraham Lincoln quote on it. And I know this is not the most authoritative source, but um, the quote was, I'm a firm believer in the people. If given the truth, they can be depended upon to meet any national crisis. The great point is to bring them the real facts and beer. Now, obviously, the beer point is true. But the facts thing, um, I think one of the, the worst things about the Brexit campaign in the UK, it was utterly devoid of fact. This idea that fact is no longer real. Experts are no longer sort of to be listened to. And I think if we're going to build trust, if people are going to lead, if we're going to have that moral leadership, we need to first listen give facts and have an honest conversation. And to my mind, institutions internationally, they are not 
technical, for technical cooperation alone. They are political institutions by nature, and if they are not listening, if they believe themselves to be above or somehow beyond politics, I think that is an error. And I think that's what you're seeing with the EU. People are responding to something that is beyond the politics of the people that they are there to represent. I, I think this is a magnificent uh, maybe conclusion. I have no idea if we have still time for questions because I don't have a watch. But I just wanted to say, I mean, what you just said, I think, is absolutely important. important. The facts, the battle of ideas. And uh, I think this was Damon earlier who said that we have a window of opportunity because the, I mean, this was quite a dark conversation. But the fact that we have a window of opportunity because people are getting engaged in certain way. Mm -hmm. And so that means it opens up a possibility to uh, expose, convince, and, and, and sort of uh, uh, turn around the tide. Uh, any time for any questions? I don't know if, yes? Do, we have two minutes, so maybe we have time for one or two questions, please. And here's the clock. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. Thank you for your commentary. My sense was that you focused a lot on symptoms. And Ashley, there are no facts today. That's one of the realities, unfortunately. <laughs> I would suggest that the fundamental cause for this populism is the nature of governments which are failed or failing. And that applies literally around the world. In your country, Ashley, because I have substantial British business interests, I was asked by the Remain side to be helpful, and I was not. I think that number 10 was either ignorant or arrogant. And had they run a smart campaign, and I think if you took the vote today, it would be 60-40 to Remain. On our side, and I think, Paula, you touched on this with institutions. My guess is if you polled Americans to ask who's a bigger threat, Putin or Congress, it would be a wash. Yes. And I would say, I'm quite serious about that. I don't, I don't and this. it seems to me that unless we start focusing on demanding more from our governments, we're not going to get ahead of the game. For example, in NATO, I think that the Wales Summit and the Warsaw Summit really provided the absolute minimum. When you take a look at the readiness action plan and deploying a couple of people to the Baltics, I mean, quite frankly, in a military sense, uh, this is deplorable. That five countries in NATO are spending 2%, uh, that's not going to change. And if you go back to the 60s, you may remember a dear great senator named Mike Mansfield, who was threatening to pull American troops out of Europe unless the Europeans paid more. My view, and I'd like you to respond, unless we attack the fundamental cause, which is failed and failing governments, and try to improve them, um, I don't think our lot is going to be better. Now, I balance that by thinking in the future the Islamic State may end up like the hula hoop and falling of its own weight. And quite frankly, I think that Mr. Putin is on borrowed time. It's not going to be tomorrow or the next day, but I think there are huge flaws in Russia. And two or three years from now, I don't think you're going to see Mr. Putin in power. But I'd like you to respond to the issue, can we do something to try to repair our institutions from NATO to government as a first step? I have a fast answer for you. My answer already is yes, because I, I felt I said that when I mentioned Huntington, that's what he said. When your government doesn't deliver, it is connected with ideals because you expect your government to do certain things for you. So yes, the answer is yes, and that has to be a definitive component of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would, I'm afraid, I mean, one more word and it will be the, the, the uh, conclusion of the uh, panel. Yeah, I just wanted to add something on, on the issue of facts. I don't want to be the one pushing back against the necessity for facts and truth, obviously. But I think also, I mean, when we're talking about leadership, it's also about what kind of society you want to live in. It's about what kind of hierarchy of values you have. And it's not only facts. If you look at the issue of immigration, 
you know, you talk to people in Brussels, they'll tell you we need more immigration because we have a demographic deficit, because we have a deficit in the workforce. So, but then you talk to people, they, you know, they will maybe put the, the question of so cultural and social cohesion above uh, uh, compensating the demographic gap with, with immigration. So I, I think it's also, you know, it's also a question of political leadership, like how do you defend yeah. certain values and ideas? And I think our, our leadership, especially in Europe right now, maybe except Merkel, but uh, is, is really you know, de devoid of these, uh, of that, that moral and ideological backbone. Yeah, and quickly, no. to, and add to, sorry, just quickly yeah. add to that. So yeah, failed and failing governments, perhaps it's because they don't feel they have the mandate or the support to do what they need to do. And they need to get out beyond that and actually lead the conversation and actually have a conversation and stop just re responding to, you know, the latest opinion poll. Thank you very much. This has been, I think, a pretty interesting conversation. Thank you for you for listening and, and for being such good speakers.